I'm so tired. There's not enough hours in the day. Bullshit excuses. I've got too much to do. I have to work late. I have to run the kids around. The bullshit excuses. I have to get up early tomorrow. They end now. This is fitness for nine to fivers. You work day-to-day jobs. In fact, you may even have two, and you've been trying to fit in a healthy lifestyle. We have the solution. This is fitness for nine to fivers. And this is Andrew Marsham. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Fitness 95ers podcast with myself, Andrew Marshall. Today I am joined by, and I'm absolutely blown away that I'm saying this, but I am joined by an incredibly special guest, Mr. Stan Efferding. Now, Stan has been an idol of mine for a very long time, someone who I've looked up to for a number of years. He's won a host of bodybuilding championships, holds multitudes of powerlifting records, including one that he that he had in 2013, all-time PR for raw lifting, so it was a total of over 2,300 pounds back in 2013. Um, he's also currently the coach of the Game of Thrones Mountain, for any of you who are aware of the, the TV series. Um, so Stan, how are you doing today? Man, I'm doing great. Uh, you make me feel so old. It seems like a distant memory, all that stuff, but I'm really enjoying what I'm doing now. I'm just trying to pass along the whatever knowledge I can to help uh, just about everyone that's interested. That's that, that's that. And, and what does your kind of current day look like at the moment? What is it your kind of projects you're involved in at the moment? What have you got going on that's kind of big in your world at the moment, Stan? Well, most of it's centered around the vertical diet, uh, the, uh, the e-book, the meal plans, the online training, uh, the uh, uh, the Vertical Diet uh, Meal Prep Company. We provide meals nationwide in the U.S. and Canada for folks. So most of it has to do with that. Uh, the um, the seminars, we're partnering with the military here and providing some, um, some certifications for nutrition. So it's really all health and fitness industry focused between our app and our meal prep and our seminars and our online training. It's all kind of vertical diet now. Yeah, sounds good. And all of that stuff will be linked in the show notes in the descriptions below all of Stan's stuff. It's absolutely incredible stuff that we're going to get into today. So for, for anyone listening, I, I spoke to Stan just before I come on, this, this is more focused around general population, so they may not be fam- too familiar with the vertical diet. So do you want to give us a quick explanation of what's involved in the vertical diet, what the kind of pros and cons are, and we'll go, we'll go from there, Stan. Yeah, you know, the vertical diet is really the plan that I've been using with my clients for over a decade. I've been competing since 1986. And uh, from all the stuff that I've learned over the years, from studying exercise science at the University of Oregon, to being a high school soccer coach, to training football players and high school collegiate and professional athletes from every sport imaginable. And obviously from working with great coaches and great athletes and, and clients over the years, I've what I did is I kind of compiled it all into one document that I provided for my clients when they came to me, whether they were an athlete or they were a, uh, you know, a dad bod or a soccer mom that uh, needed some help losing weight. I wanted to make sure they had a really comprehensive program that covered, you know, sleep and hydration and blood work and uh, cardiovascular fitness and 
Uh, obviously, nutrition is a huge component of that. And so, uh, you know, I made sure that they had everything they needed because it's, a, you know, it's comprehensive, the approach. It's yeah. about creating good habits and following those consistently. And there's no one thing that uh, is going to, you know, be the game changer for folks. But I, I tried to put it all in there. And so, you know, after all the notoriety from training some of the high profile athletes, uh, working with Flex Wheeler and Hofthor Bjornsson, obviously, and Brian Shaw and many of the CrossFit national champions, uh, Camille LeBlanc and, and Becca Voigt and Ben Smith, it got really popular and people started asking me about my program. And so I compiled it all into an ebook, a 250 page ebook. It's very comprehensive. It has over 200. Excellent you document. Know, Excellent document. Yeah. I told you know, and I, really, really good. And I tried to link in there lots of additional uh, deep dive research articles, videos from, you know, preeminent uh, academics and, and successful uh, athletes in the industry. Just the kind of information that people might spend months or years trying to sift through to find, uh, you know, who the who the authorities were. <laughs> and you know, being in the business, you know very well that there's lots of information out there. And, yeah. uh, you know, I've been around a long time. And I, so I, I tried to find the most uh, credible, uh, you know, both academically and competitively inclined uh, people to so that my clients not only had the information, but knew that it was sound and solid and could uh, had the confidence. A lot of it's, you know, just about making sure they buy into to how important all of these things are. So that's kind of what the vertical diet is. It's it's more than just a nutrition plan. I call it the vertical diet and peak performance 3.0. And it, and it really is every single aspect from creating good habits to uh, sleep optimization to hydration to digestion to, uh, you know, obviously nutrition. Uh, hormone optimization, all of those things I put in there because I want them to, to have just 360 degrees, all the information they need to be successful. Yeah, 100%. And it touches on something that I think is one of the biggest issues in the world. It, it goes to the source of the problems and tries to solve the root cause rather than just stick a, a plaster on it. And that's one thing that really resonates with it for me. You know, you talk about, for example, caffeine and things like that, the amount of caffeine consumption daily, it could then causes downstream digestive issues and things like that. Well, well, let's ask the question first, why do we need those things, you know? Um, you know, you should be feeling good, you should be feeling energetic, you should be feeling healthy. And when you start addressing the issues like sleep, digestion, the nutrition aspects, that really then just has all those positive downstream benefits. Yeah, I'm cautious not to demonize too many things. I, I come out hard against vegetable oils, as you know. That's yeah. kind of my my trigger. It's the one thing I, I don't yield on, those seed oils, the, the three C's and the three S's, canola and corn oil and cottonseed and soybean and sunflower and safflower. Uh, I don't think they're healthy. I don't think they're beneficial for a diet. Everything else I talk about in terms of a good, better, best scenario yeah. and how it might affect you, how you respond. Um, you know, it's not just a matter of uh, you. It's not what you, you are, not what you eat, you what you digest and absorb. And people respond differently to certain foods. And I found one of the like you said, I try and get in front of the problem. And, and the front of the problem is things like sleep and digestion and absorption of your your nutrients. And then that directly impacts your hormones. And that, of course, has a, a huge uh, downstream cascade of effects on your appetite and your lean body mass retention and your energy and all of that. So, uh, you know, obviously calories are important, but there's so many other 
aspects to the program that I think is important to manage. And, you know, you mentioned coffee and I said it's kind of a double edged sword. Some of these things may be beneficial for some people in certain amounts under. uh, But I have a whole list of things that aren't necessarily bad for you, but may, uh, you know, I say it's individualistic. It's dose dependent. uh, It's cumulative in nature and how things are prepared matter. And so I get pretty specific, mainly because I found that that's what my clients wanted. I could be really general. I could write a book about nutrition, but this is really intended to be a very specific diet plan that you can start immediately upon receiving and we can make adjustments ongoing. But if I give somebody just some generalities, oh, here's a ballpark calorie figure based on a calculator. I do that. Sure. Oh, here's your macros. I do that. Sure. Well, now what? You know, what foods do they eat? And if they're not very knowledgeable about the calories or the fat and protein content of a particular food, then they're kind of lost. And so I get very specific. I list exactly what I think they should eat to start, what they should avoid to start. And I create menu plans and meal plans for people based on that. And at least we have a launching point from which now I can get feedback and with some daily tracking of hours of sleep and uh, daily weight and uh, waist circumference. Uh, maybe energy feedback, digestion, you know, uh, uh, what would you say, uh, uh, regularity and stool quality. I ask all of those questions so that yeah. ongoing I can make, you know, adjustments to the diet to fit the individual because everybody is an individual. And ultimately, as you know, my big quote is compliance is the science. And so I, well, I try and, I try and create a program that works for the individual and that, that you know, it's, I start with with a you know a foundation, but I have to build on that based on feedback from from the client. So I try and address all that in there. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I, there was a, the I can I remember seeing it on Twitter before. I can't remember who it was um, that had put it up, but they listed the three most important things in a diet, and they were well, what number one adherence, number two adherence, number three adherence. You know. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, if you're just throwing something at somebody and expect them to stick to it, then without really any context to their, their general situation, then what are you doing? As you said, you can spew out a calorie and macro number and what happens, you know? Um, it's kind of pointless to start with. So what would be some of the kind of first pillars you would address? Obviously, sleep management, one of the biggest things out there um, in terms of, the general, the average person, you know, they really struggle with sleep stress levels and things like that. What are some of the initial first pillars you would recommend somebody starts looking at in terms of that vertical approach? Uh, you know, for sleep, we, we look at a, a whole host of things. We Obviously, sleep quantity is important. Yeah. You want to get at least seven hours. And ideally, in terms of your circadian rhythms, you'd like those hours to be between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. or 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. That would be ideal to optimize circadian rhythms. And then I kind of go down a list of things that are important for what I call sleep quality. And that's, uh, that gets us into you know, sleep, good sleep hygiene. Yeah. And uh, that's going to be a dark room, a quiet room, a cool room. And if you have to get blackout blinds or wear earphones, uh, certainly set the thermostat. Those are three key things that, that most people should control. Uh, most people suffer from from poor sleep just simply because they burn the candle at both ends. They just don't get to bed early enough and they wake up too, too early in the morning. Yep. And those are, that's just a matter of, of, of self-discipline. 
Uh, they don't necessarily have a sleep problem. Uh, it's just a matter of, of they just don't appreciate how important it is. And I, I reiterate that, and I, I include some very good resources, Dr. Matthew Walker and Dr. Stasha Gominak, and some brief videos of them and some of their literature that's easy to, to absorb, to, just to kind of reiterate the importance of it. That's where I start. If I can't optimize somebody's sleep, it really doesn't make any sense for me to, to start throwing things like creatine at them or worrying about you know, their, their split, their training split, or none of that really matters. And you've heard me say many times, and I'll, I'll share it again with your audience. Yeah. If you're religiously taking creatine every day and only sleeping five hours a night, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> Still. I, <it's> a, <laughs> I, I just can't, I, I can't say it any differently than that. Yeah, it just doesn't I mean, make sense. The, the, the level of stress and thought process some people put into certain factors, like how many grams of BCAs, how many grams of creatine. But you ask them what time to go to bed at night, and it's uh, 11 o'clock last night and I had the television on until half 10. And then on Friday, I was out till three in the morning, you know, and it, yep. it's just the basic simple questions that that need to be asked first, you know, and, and certainly in my opinion, I'm not the most experienced coach in the world. I, I would never, you know, say I wasn't. You've certainly got a lot more on me, but just kind of addressing those basic first examples, like this night and day difference, you know. Oh, it's huge. And, you know, since we're here and people want to know a little more, obviously getting to bed on time, getting rid of um, your, you know, turning off your iPhone and your TV so you're not interfering with the, the light so your melatonin can be released. That's huge. At least two hours before bed, start shutting down all that blue light. Um, another big thing is uh, uh, after the environment, after managing the environment is, do you have some sort of sleep um, apnea? That's a big one, particularly for heavier people. Yeah, yeah, and that's going to affect the quality of the sleep, you know, along with all these other factors. And if you're, if you have some degree of sleep apnea, and then your your blood oxygen level starts to lower at night, then you're going to be tired. You're going to elevate your blood pressure significantly. Your blood sugars are going to go up. Your cholesterol is adversely affected as a result. Obviously, you're you're going to wake up tired. Uh, you're not going to recover well from your exercise. You're going to be fatigued. It's going to have an influence on your ins on your uh, thyroid function which is going to affect your basal metabolic rates. You're going to burn fewer calories. It's going to cause you to, to hold on to fat and to burn more muscle. And so it, it adversely affects your body composition. Uh, so all of those things are huge in terms of, of you know, getting good quality sleep. There's a whole list of things that I, I have a, in the vertical diet. Uh, we talked about some of the easy stuff. Vitamin D3, getting optimal vitamin D3 can help. Waking up at the same time every morning Massive. is a huge one. And getting exposed to some sort of sunlight. And if you're not in the environment that allows for that, then you can just get a, like a 10,000 lux light from as the internet. Some, as someone who's from Scotland, I'm certainly not in that environment anyway. <laughs> right. And it's pretty important. It, what it does is it starts the circadian clock. 100%. The time you wake up. So you should consistently wake up at the same time every morning and get exposed to light. And just 10, 15 minutes of light. They have these little lights. They're about the size of a, a computer screen. And there's a 10,000 lux light. They're only about, I don't know, 40 to $60. They're not a lot. And you could sit, sit and eat breakfast in front of them as would be ideal. And then try and get outside if possible after breakfast and take a walk. That kind of thing is the single most important factor that's going to determine whether or not you're tired at night and releasing the hormones necessary to get to sleep at night. I, I forgot to mention in terms of, of all the things that are adverse in terms of poor sleep, 
two big ones for diet. Uh, one is that, that you'll start releasing more ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. So now you're just hungry all day long and you tend to eat more. Plus, if you're up more hours, just being awake for 18 hours, <laughs> yeah, 19 hours as opposed to, you know, 16 hours, it gives you three extra hours to eat. And so people <laughs> tend to just, they just eat more. Uh, in my book, Dr. Matthew Walker goes through a few other things that I think are important. Um, some people, like I get firemen that come to me, even in their 20s with low testosterone levels from poor sleep. They'll try and couple together a couple of three-hour bouts of sleep. They'll get off of work and they'll sleep for three hours. And then they'll go about their day and then try and sleep for a couple hours later in the day. Not optimal because each, uh, you know, the sleep cycles are such that each subsequent cycle, they're about 90-minute cycles. And as you get in each cycle has a longer and longer REM and stage four restorative sleep. I emphasize restorative because stage four sleep is the most restorative. And the amount of time you spend in stage four sleep depends on how long you are in bed for, for a, a, a period of time. Because each subsequent 90 minute cycle of sleep has a longer and longer restorative sleep. So when you exceed six hours of sleep, those restorative sleep cycles are much longer, much more beneficial. So it's really important that, that we not couple together. Multi Obviously, sleep as much as you can, when you can, uh, but it's not a plan of action uh, uh, to, be, to displace the possibility that you come home in the morning and actually try and stay asleep for seven straight hours. And for night shift workers, that might include, you know, having to get blackout blinds and earphones because, the, you know, obviously the, the, in daytime that light's going to affect you and then your neighbor might be mowing the lawn or, you know, the kids and the families running around. So yep. that's a big thing. Um, they've done a lot of study on white noise and it doesn't seem to be very effective. Magnesium does seem to help. Maybe 400 milligrams with dinner of a magnesium citrate would be helpful. Yep. Meditation is helpful. Uh, the worry journal is something I've talked about in my sleep rants and videos is just writing everything down before bed, just kind of offloading your stress or your to-do list so that, you know, it's there for you when you wake up. You don't have to sit there and worry about forgetting it. A warm shower has been shown to be helpful in research. Uh, and uh, obviously, we talked about all the other factors. The last thing he mentions is in terms of sleep aids. We want to avoid things uh, like Ambien uh, or marijuana or alcohol or yeah. uh, you name it because they impair REM and stage four sleep. They may help make you drowsy and they may help you fall asleep but they're going to impair your REM and stage four sleep. So you still wake up tired as a result. So it's that, it's that's that, the big stuff. It's that vicious cycle, isn't it? I'd, I'll have maybe clients come to me and say, I would I prefer, you know, a couple of drinks of wine or a couple of beers a night to, to, to relax and things. But at the end of the day, you're counteracting the problem because you're not actually getting as restful sleep. So it's how do we address that in the first place? How can we get you you know, to a more tired state or to get yeah. you into that better sequence by doing things like that you mentioned, you know? Even the likes of the, the short 10-minute walks, which we haven't really touched on yet, the, that's something that, that I had implemented um, of yours recently, over the last couple of years anyway, post, you know, after, eat, after uh, going out to eat or having a meal or something like that, and it's made a massive difference in me and the way I feel. Um, and those even doesn't really matter how late on a meeting, you know, I try not to get too close to bed, but if I'm meeting within an hour, hour and a half, I'll even still go out a 10 minute walk and it does just help, you know, calm me down, help me wind down a bit towards the end of the night. 
Yeah, that's huge. I'm, I'm glad you touched on that. I want to um, conclude the sleep portion by talking about uh, sleep apnea and CPAPs as a solution. Yeah. People who have sleep apnea uh, have a much higher rate of heart disease, obesity, all of those things that we just mentioned, uh, elevated blood pressure. Uh, so a, a, a CPAP machine is a cure. It's a solution for 99% of the people who have apnea. It, it's, it breathes for you. So you don't uh, hold your breath at night. Those can be hard to get, particularly in, in where socialized medicine is, is popular yeah. in, in Canada and European countries, Australia. Yeah, pretty expensive here, I think. <laughs> it, yeah, here it can be really expensive. Uh, over there, it can be time consuming to get into a doctor. And then even if they identify you as having uh, uh, say it's not severe, maybe it's only a, a modest form, then they recommend weight loss and they don't prescribe a machine. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I, I think that, that the machine, it's, it's a matter of kind of a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't, or a you know, chicken and egg kind of thing. The machine will immediately benefit blood pressure and blood sugars and all those health markers and potentially help you lose weight. And so uh, I promote the machine here in the States, I just have folks, we can go on walmart.com and order a dream station and, and it, it, it adjusts the, um, the pressure for you and uh, it's really easy to use. Overseas, some, sometimes folks can access via Craigslist or one of their local resale uh, organizations and get a CPAP. The new auto PAPs are really easy to use. So I'm pretty adamant about it. I know the medical community doesn't like when I make, uh, they give this kind of quote unquote medical advice, but uh, these machines are not drugs. And uh, they're, they're, I can't think of any downside. If, you've, if you're snoring and waking up tired and you've got your extra weight and you're holding your breath at night, um, I would get one of those right away. It's the first thing I do. And even when I work with big athletes, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll get them a CPAP immediately. So I hate to keep banging that drum, but it's, it's, it's life changing. And I've been in this business, like I said, since 1986 as a competitor. And I've trained thousands and thousands of people. The vertical diet has now reached over 100,000 unique users worldwide. Amazing. And it's the single most important thing. It is life changing when you go for, and I know this cause I've been using a CPAP on and off since the mid nineties, ever since my weight started elevating over 230, 240, 250. And certainly throughout most of my competitive career, when I was as high as 300, I, I needed one uh, just to breathe at night. And uh, it's life changing. You wake up the next morning after not having a CPAP and, and it's, I mean, you're, you're, you're washing your car and cleaning the gutters and mowing the lawn. And uh, it's just, it's amazing how much energy you have. You, you identify yourself as, it's like somebody just recently told me they've got narcolepsy. I'm like, no, you're just, you've got apnea and you're not sleeping at night. So you're just falling asleep all day. That's, that's what you have. And that's another one of those things where you try and get in front of it. Obviously the weight loss would be the key component yeah. uh, to, to curing apnea. Uh, but uh, not everybody can do that as quickly or, or as efficiently as others. And there's even like, you know, Jordan Fagenbaum from Barbell Medicine, who's a, a power lifter. He's only 198 pounds. He's, he's fit. He's probably 10% body fat. He wears a CPAP because he's got a thick neck from squatting. It has more to do with crowding of the airway from neck girth than it does necessarily with uh, your BMI. Uh, but th that is certainly both can be considerations. Yeah, of course. Again, it just comes down to that situation of dependency, really, doesn't it? And how you can first address it. Um, in terms of the, the the nutrition piece, do you want to kind of touch more into that just now? Um, yeah. Give us a brief summary of what's involved there, um, and can I just give it a quick run through? Yeah, let me take a quick run. One of the big things that that uh, the vertical diet focuses on is building a foundation. Uh, so, because I say you can't put a three-bedroom house on a two-bedroom foundation. And 
so first and foremost, I want to get highly micronutrient dense foods yeah. that are easy to digest, uh, highly bioavailable foods. And so, and I'm cautious about not being too restrictive. Uh, being in the bodybuilding figure physique bikini industry, I've trained athletes all the way up until the Miss Olympia level. And uh, again, the vast majority of my clients are dad bods and soccer moms from all over the world with digestion issues and acid reflux and high blood sugar, high blood pressure issues, fatigue. Uh, and I use the diet first and foremost, obviously the sleep, but then the diet uh, to remedy those problems. And so what my concern is, is that what's happened over the many, uh, I, I would say at least the last 20 years, but certainly it's gotten more pronounced, is we've started over restricting. When we go on a diet, we start eating egg whites and yeah. tilapia and broccoli. Broccoli. And almost immediately, as anybody who's been to a nutritionist or a, a doctor who doesn't have much nutrition training will hear is, is a host of things. Cut out red meat. Cut out dairy. Yeah. Cut out fruit. Cut out sodium. Uh, once you do that, now you're, you're, you're flirting with all kinds of nutrient deficiency yep. potential. Uh, you cut out red meat, it's three times as higher in iron, six times higher in zinc, and nine times higher in B12 than even chicken. And it's certainly a million times more nutrient-dense than egg whites. You cut out whole eggs because of the fear about cholesterol that's been perpetuated, uh, erroneously so, for the last yep. 40 years. Uh, and now, especially for women, when you start getting deficiencies in biotin, now you're talking about skin, hair, and nails. Their hair starts falling out. Um, the B12 and iron in red meat is hugely important, particularly for women, uh, because of the menstrual cycle, they tend to be iron deficient. They get anemia, particularly if they're exercising regularly. So I do put red meat in my diet. I put whole eggs in my diet. Uh, I put some dairy in my diet. We see some of the healthiest countries with the, the leanest uh, body composition, uh, the tallest uh, people in the world, the Dutch from the Netherlands, uh, consume the most dairy. Uh, dairy's been wrongly maligned as well by PETA and the rest of your vegan industry, uh, trying to scare people and use fear-mongering to, to prevent them from eating these very important foods. Um, calcium's important. It's important for bones, certainly, but it's even more important for muscle contraction and, and for nerve uh, signaling. So uh, I, I definitely include that in there. Uh, getting a good iodine source is important. A lot of people uh, are, are now eating uh, like pink salt and sea salt, and that's fine. I'm all about salt. Uh, Sodium is another thing that, that people are cutting out that they shouldn't be um, because of, of some really poor advice about blood pressure, which we could talk about in a second. But when you do that, you're not getting iodine. There's no iodine in sea salt or pink salt. And so you have to have an iodine source, whether that's from sea kelp or I use cranberry juice here with people in the United States. Uh, yeah. it's, it's easy easy to get. It's kind of harder to get in, in Europe and Australia. Um, but uh, that's just another source of iodine, or you could use iodized salt. Uh, and none of this is, is particularly um, new information. In the U.S. in the 1920s, the CDC had put iodine in table salt because people were suffering from high existence of goiter. Uh, that's obviously going to affect the thyroid function, your basal metabolic rate. It affects the, the brain development of, of, uh, uh, of uh, your infant, of your unborn child, as well as your newborn child. Uh, so iodine is extremely, and, and children get it from their mother who, uh, if they're deficient, can't pass it along. 
it's in egg yolks, it's in a little bit in dairy, particularly the grass fed and uh, the, the eggs that are pasture fed, the chickens that are pasture fed with bugs and grubs have higher iodine in the egg yolk. Um, but I, I try not to leave this to chance. And so I'll use iodized salt or I'll use, um, you know, sea kelp or, or cranberry juice, but especially important for people who exercise and sweat regularly, you sweat out iodine. Where we saw it most was in, you know, soccer players and, and athletes who, who have a, a high workload, they started having, uh, you know, high iodine deficiency. So that's certainly part of the foundation of the diet. Salt, as I touched on, is huge. Uh, again, wrongly maligned. Uh, it's so important for energy. It's important for appetite control. It's important for uh, recovery. Um, it's important for blood pressure control. People think that, that high salt diets lead to... Um, uh, high blood pressure, but that's not the case. There are some people with genetic predispositions that, that, uh, that may have some, uh, you know, elevated blood pressure from salt consumption, but it's a small percentage of the population. Yeah. And when you include adequate potassium in their diet, then the blood pressure elevation goes away. And even then, even a hypertensive individual who consumes too much salt, they can measure somewhere between two and seven millimeters of systolic elevation. That's not terribly significant when you consider that sleep apnea can cause a 20 millimeter elevation in systolic blood pressure and hypothyroidism, particularly in women, when they compare two groups of women, one who's hypothyroid, low thyroid, and one who's normal thyroid, there's a 20 point systolic uh, blood pressure difference between the two groups. So obviously salt is not uh, a significant driver of blood pressure. Uh, for the for the vast majority of the population, and if you've ever had, you know, for me, I experienced it with uh, women who come in to work out, and they'll get on the leg press machine, and then they'll stand up, and they'll be dizzy, they'll be lightheaded, and even like your your mom or your grandmother at home, and they get up from a lying position, and they've got to stop because they're dizzy. That's a sodium deficiency. In in like ninety seven percent of the cases, they just aren't getting adequate salt in their diet, and that problem would go away immediately. These women who get up off the leg press and are dizzy. If I give them you know, a quarter teaspoon of salt, think about that number, a quarter teaspoon, a tiny little amount is about 500 milligrams of sodium. If I have them ingest that about 30 minutes before a workout with a glass of water, they no longer have the dizziness and they have more energy and stamina and endurance and they recover faster and they just feel better. And so they're obviously more likely to exercise more regularly yep. with that. So I'm big on sodium obviously and iodine. I, I touched on fruit um, in the diet. People demonize fruit. Because yeah, it blows my mind. It blows my it mind. blows my mind. And, you know, <laughs> they, they, because they hear fruit, they hear fructose and, or carbohydrates, you know, and carbs are yeah. bad now. And, of course, of course. Uh, you sp spike insulin and instantly store fat. <laughs> yeah. So just so everybody knows that's not a thing. <laughs> that, uh, they've done plenty of studies. You can eat about as much fruit as you want and not, and those populations aren't showing an increase in body weight. So I include fruit in there for a couple of reasons. It, it really does help. Uh, fructose elevates body temperature. So, and it also in the liver helps convert um, uh, the inactive form of thyroid T4 into the active form T3, which is very important, obviously for your, for your energy levels and your, your basal metabolic rate, but also for all of the hormones downstream. Uh, thyroid acts kind of as a regulator for many other hormones. So uh, I do throw fruit in my diet every single day. Uh, I get some fiber in there. My vegetables I choose are, uh, I should, should probably mention kind of in a general sense, I mentioned digestion being important. I use a low FODMAP diet. FODMAPs yeah, yeah. are 
fermentable oligo dye monosaccharides and polyols. They're foods that might cause uh, gas and bloating. If people are eating uh, high FODMAP foods, they might experience uh, problems with gas and bloating and digestion issues. So I use a low FODMAP diet, the Monash group uh, uh, put together a diet of foods that uh, has been tested significant, you know, many times and, and the studies demonstrate that about people with IBS and IBD, irritable bowel syndrome, irritable bowel disorder, um, uh, either, either with diarrhea or constipation or gas and bloating, about 60 to 80% of people realize a relief in their symptoms from just simply switching to a low FODMAP diet. I include a link. I also include all of the foods that, that are high and low FODMAP diets in my uh, vertical diet. But that's kind of the menu I initially pick from because I want people to, to feel, uh, I don't want them to, ha to have a lot of gas and bloating with their, with their digestion. And so I use things like, uh, you know, vegetables that are low FODMAP would be like spinach, um, and, uh, carrots, uh, you know, root tubers, um, you know, the kinds of, uh, uh, squash, cucumber, uh, you know, vegetables that don't give you a lot of distress when you eat them. High FODMAP, uh, vegetables might be say broccoli and cauliflower and asparagus. And I'm not suggesting those foods are bad for you, but I'm saying how you prepare them matters. They should be steamed. So they're soft. Um, how much of them you eat and how often, and there can be a cumulative effect. So if you, you eat them three times a day, then you may end up accumulating uh, enough of the, the bacteria that, um, uh, that uh, in the large intestine to digest those foods, it creates a lot of methane and then the gas and bloating. Yeah, again, I, so, think, I think it's a big self-awareness piece in that one as well. You know, just throwing them in every now and then is not going to harm you, but if you're continually hammering these away and it was especially the restrictive piece for me I think is most people are chasing the instant result you know so they, they, they completely cut out any sort of general nutrition and go right what's the quickest way I can get a result by eating broccoli spinach or by eating broccoli you know rabbit food essentially and some white fish or some white meat you know plain yeah. chicken and rice things like that and it's just chasing that instant result I think that a lot of people are getting caught up in it and a lot of bad advice out there as well. No, I agree. And, and the problem is, is that there might be some short-term weight loss simply from the caloric yeah. restriction, but long-term it's going to manifest in those micronutrient deficiencies and women are going to get up with the female triad. They're going to have anemia. They're going to have, yeah. uh, you know, low calcium osteoporosis always becomes a, a concern with, with those deficient the diets. Amenorrhea, you know, cessation of the menstrual period. Now you've got a, a uh, suppression of estrogen, which changes uh, the way women store fat instead of peripherally subcutaneously in the hips and butt, all of a sudden they're storing fat in their midsection for visceral fat, which is, uh, you know, adverse for health outcomes. That's uh, where men tend to store fat in uh, around the organs, which can lead to uh, fatty liver and then, um, you know, uh, elevated uh, uh, blood sugars, type two diabetes, all those things occur from, you know, kind of where the fat is stored. And that can happen to women postmenopausal. We already know that it redirects the fat storage with low estrogen. So all of that's preceded by these micronutrient deficiencies that, that cause these problems. The hair loss, the brittle hair, their skin just doesn't look as good. All of that occurs from biotin deficiencies from eating egg whites, which rob biotin from your body, and you're not getting the yolk. You know, and then they'll substitute some peanut butter, which is an inferior protein source. It doesn't have adequate leucine to spike muscle protein synthesis. It's high in omega six fatty acids. It's not a good substitute for an egg yolk. So I'm, I'm concerned about those things. 
you know, that kind of always begets the conversation about macros after talking through most of the, the foods on the vertical diet that I just mentioned. Uh, I would kind of finish off to say that, yes, some fatty fish is good for EPA and DHA, and a couple times a week, you should certainly get a dose of those. Um, and that the fats generally for me are in the protein sources. They're in the eggs, they're in the yogurt, they're in the meat. Uh, and you don't need to add a whole lot of extra fats. They're in the, the, the salmon. Uh, just two five ounce servings of salmon a week is going to give you your, your 14 grams. Yeah, of that, that, tends to, that, that tends to be my go-to is the salmon for sure. Um, again, yeah. and, and, it's, and it's more just about focusing on the quality of your nutrition first rather than trying to get caught up in numbers and things like that. And just addressing some basic principles, you know, which you had, which you had, which you had, which the vertical diet does so well, you know, in my opinion, um, it's something that's certainly been most beneficial to me. And when trying to build muscle mass, especially, just keep to those easier digesting foods, things like that, it just makes life so much easier. That's true. A couple of things to consider is that if you're in a calorie deficit, uh, you know, because you want to lose weight, and that's necessary. Calories are king, and you know, I'm. I'm just talked a lot about micronutrients and how important the quality of the food is, but uh, quantity matters. And uh, when you're dieting and you're in calorie restricted mode, let's say you're a you know 170 pound woman that wants to get to 140, maybe that's your goal. Uh, now you have to create a calorie deficit. So depending on how many calories you were eating, obviously I don't like people to be too restrictive, but if let's say you're only taking in 15, 1600 calories a day, the quality of those calories becomes really important. How do you get adequate iron and calcium and B vitamins and choline and 4,700 milligrams of potassium a day? How do you get that out of a micronutrient deficient diet of egg whites and tilapia and broccoli? It's, it's really hard to do. So I'm, I'm pretty picky about the, in terms of the good, better, best scenario. When you're restricting calories, it's really important that, that, the micronutrients are accounted for first. I know people uh, uh, want to start looking at the macros and, and we get a lot of talk about if it fits your macros, et cetera. And, you know, is it okay to eat, uh, you know, some sugar here and there? And I, I guess in so much as it displaces necessary micronutrients, I, I'm not too flexible at that point. Um, I want the foods to be very nutrient dense, whole foods that are easy to digest. Um, I'm all for, for uh, being able to make substitutions uh, in terms of getting the adequate calories and adequate proteins, fats, and carbs. But if it displaces these micronutrients, then I'm, I'm going to be a little, uh, a little more particular, at least launching a diet that's in a deficit. When you go back to maintenance calories, maybe you can include a few of those things. Yeah, okay. it's going to come down to that situation. And as you said, if you're someone who doesn't have a lot of calories to play with, you have to be making the absolute most out of the calories you are taking in, you know, to, to get those positive effects from your, from your nutrition. Yeah. So we should touch on macros because there's a huge debate here between our low carb and our high carb folks. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what most importantly is that we get adequate protein, particularly when you're dieting. It's highly satiating. Uh, it's got a, a high thermic effect of food, meaning for every 100 calories of protein you eat, you only net out about 70 yep. as opposed to 98% of, of fats and carbs, 95, 98 uh, depending. And so, and also, uh, it's really hard to overeat protein because it's so satiating. You just aren't hungry as often and you can't eat as much. 
Um, Dr. Jose Antonio from the International Society of Sports Nutrition has done multiple overfeeding studies with protein and has found that it's very hard to eat too much protein. And if you take three groups of people and one of them, you feed them 800 extra calories of protein and the other two groups, you feed them 800 extra calories of fats and then carbs, the protein group doesn't tend to gain weight and the other two groups do. Uh, it's both the thermic effect of food and um, the, uh, the satiating effect that benefits. So one of the next things I focus on in the diet is, is for people who are in calorie restricted mode uh, is making sure that, you know, the, the biggest reasons people fail on a diet is they get hungry or they get tired. And so I'm focused on satiating them and giving them adequate energy. On the satiation side, I take their protein up high, maybe 1.2 grams per pound. What's that going to be uh, about 2.5 or 2.8 grams per kilo? Yeah, somewhere in that range, yeah. <laughs> yep. So I lead with protein, uh, first and foremost. And uh, for people who are, say, obese and maybe type 2 diabetic or have hyperinsulinemia and high blood sugars and, and have a hard time controlling appetite, I'll keep carbs really minimal. I'll bring them down, not because they're bad necessarily, but because people who are, have hyperinsulinemia tend to respond with a lot of hunger if, they, if their blood sugars spike and then drop. And, but for, the, for generally, for most folks, I'll keep some carbs in uh, because they, they tend to uh, help with people's energy levels and with their exercise program. And I, I want people to, to have some sort of, I don't care who they are, dad bods and soccer moms, I don't care. They have to have some sort of pro progressive resistance training uh, in their program. Lifting weights is far more important than cardiovascular, uh, <laughs> than car doing cardio for weight loss, uh, retaining lean body mass. We find that the people who lose the most muscle when dieting tend to gain more weight back and it's more fat weight. And so we want to keep the muscle on the body. And uh, it's also better as you age for longevity uh, uh, and just for general health. Muscle's more important. And so if I have to choose, if you've got a limited amount of time, and I understand that most of my clients, you know, they don't have uh, an enormous amount of time. They have to fit this whole nutrition and training thing into their lifestyle. And that's why I, I do the 10-minute walks because it's easy to fit in your lifestyle. But if I have to choose between walking on the treadmill for 40 minutes and lifting weights, I'm going to pick lifting weights every time for, yeah, for many, many reasons. Well, and it could be it could be any resistance program. You know, if you don't like lifting weights, you know, we're just talking maybe some push-ups or some chin-ups. Uh, but there should be some sort of resistance program involved with your diet plan to preserve lean body mass. The protein helps, but there has to be some stimulus so that you're not losing muscle tissue when you're dieting because that's a long-term. It's going to be absolutely catastrophic for them when they start gaining back the fat. To be one of the biggest misconceptions that I certainly come up against with clients when they're coming on. Um, I want to lose weight, so I'm going to go out running, or I'm going to spend 50 minutes in the treadmill, you know. Uh, no, let's just dial, dial it back a bit here. Up the protein intake, let's look at some ways we can get some protein in your diet. You start a resistance training program like, what? What, do, do you not just eat nothing and, you know, focus yeah. downstairs for 40 minutes? What? No. No, and, and, I, and I included a couple of great videos that you probably recall from the ebook by Dr. Aaron Carroll from Healthcare Triage. He's an extraordinary resource on YouTube. He's got Healthcare Triage site. He's the dean of research for Indiana. He's an MD, and he has a team of guys that he works with 
and they've done extraordinary amount of research uh, on um, exercise for weight loss. And it's not a very effective method for weight loss. Trading uh, calories for exercise is a bad plan. It never results in, in very good success. You get two groups of people and one just diets and the other group diets and exercises. They have pretty similar weight loss outcomes. And you would think that would be different, but it's, it's not the case. So it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of a wasted effort. Plus most of those exercise programs are unsustainable. And like we said earlier, you know, what's the best diet, the one you'll follow, what's the best exercise, the one you'll do. And so we have to find some sort of quote unquote exercise that people enjoy. I obviously lead with the 10 minute walks because they're easy to do. They're easy to comply with. They're part of a lifestyle. Everybody can, can just hop up and take a 10 minute walk or get a little recumbent bike in their garage or put it in their living room. And after a meal, you take a 10 minute walk. It's not to burn calories. I, I don't, I don't use that to burn calories. As you know, I use that to improve digestion. There's yep. Excellent research to suggest that when you get up and move after a meal, it increases the enzymatic action. It increases the, uh, it decreases the blood sugar spike and duration. So it keeps your insulin down. There's quite a significant difference when I started introducing the 10 minute walks post, post meal. Like, yeah, I do it religiously. I've been doing it religiously for years. I kind of fell into it over 10 years ago when I was competing I found that after a big squat session, say on Sunday, I would go and do heavy squats. On Monday, I used to just lay around all day trying to quote unquote recover. I would sleep a lot and nap a lot and sit a lot. And I would, I would have more soreness. My delayed onset muscle <laughs> soreness would, would go on for three days. Yeah. So reading some research at the time, and I don't re recollect where it came from, uh, but now there's plenty of great research. Uh, I got a recumbent bike and I put it in my hotel room at the time I was staying in Sacramento training with Mark Bell uh, every day. And I would do three 10 minute recumbent bike rides. I would do a little hit session. I would ride for 30 seconds with a little resistance at some elevated speed and I'd rest for 30 seconds. I would do that 10 times. It would take me 10 minutes, but I would do it three times a day. The frequency really matters. Yeah. It makes a big difference. And we've seen this just in, in ordinary exercise or, or when you compare sedentary groups of, say, office workers to office workers who exercise for 30 minutes at the end of the day, there's no improvement in the group that exercises for 30 minutes at the end of the day in terms of all-cause mortality or blood sugars over the sedentary group. They, they don't see a big difference. But if the sedentary group gets up and moves a few minutes out of every hour or say implements the three 10 minute walks, they do have a significantly reduced blood sugar and improved all cause mortality. So frequency matters. It really helps with uh, blood sugar control. I did a video where I talked about the fact that it's actually twice as effective as metformin for controlling type two diabetes onset. And that's the number one prescribed medication for, for the onset of type two diabetes in the world. It's twice as effective. It, it, it halved, the number of people who became type two diabetic as when compared to using metformin, a 10 minute walk three times a day. Uh, actually it was only twice a day in that study. It was only 130 minutes a, a week and I'm recommending 210 minutes, three 10 minute walks a day. So I use it for all of those reasons, not to burn calories. If you want to lose weight, uh, not eating too much is the number one way to do it. <laughs> and, and all, and the, the, the lifting weights is simply to retain muscle tissue. Yeah. And the 10 minute walks is simply to improve uh, blood sugars and digestion. 
So I'm not making any recommendation for burning calories per se or earning your ice cream cone. It's not a good way to, to diet. You can have an ice cream cone, just eat less of something else. That's the way to manage that problem. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I love exercise, and I think it's important that people improve their cardiovascular fitness. Uh, but what we know about cardiovascular fitness and how it benefits all-cause all mortality is that it's not a very high bar. Uh, they measure that uh, cardiovascular fitness in terms of metabolic equivalents, METs. And I think somewhere around seven or eight METs, that's the equivalent of walking up four flights of stairs without getting winded. It's a 13-minute mile. It's not very aggressive. You can get that with a pretty brisk walk yeah. three times a day and not have to exceed that. Obviously, if you're an athlete and you have some expectation of performing at a higher level, you're going to do more cardio. But my point is, is that it's not good. It's not optimal for, uh, for uh, weight loss and it's not, um, and you're not required to do any excess of then the 10 minute walks. And so in terms of sustainability, uh, I would stick with with those recommendations so that people can get the, the biggest bang for their buck, what I call the biggest return on their investment so they can have a life and have kids and have a job and, and still maintain an extraordinary level of fitness. Yeah, and, and that system, the vertical system, is the perfect one for it. Literally, you know, like just putting some of these very, very simple basic frameworks in place that, that literally no one can do. Like... No one can go for a 10-minute walk after a meal. No one can, you know, push for seven hours of sleep. Just doing some basic, simple, you know, and having a bit of discipline around it will completely change your life, you know. Um, for anyone who isn't aware of Stan and what he does, I highly recommend you check out the resources. They will all, as I said, be linked below. Um, it is an incredible system. It's something that's brought a lot of value to my life and I now help pass on to my own clients as well. So I can't thank you enough, Stan. Yeah, thanks for having me. I know we, we kind of took a pretty deep dive into very few topics. The, the, yeah. the in, there's just so much great information out there. Um, my program was intended to, to be really simple. You can breeze through it and I have... Uh, a quick start guide, and then I have those what I call my prescriptions. Yeah. Uh, just so you could you could get started. You know, you could download my program and not read, not have to read the whole 250 pages, unless you wanted to. And you could get started within 10 minutes. And I've got uh, you know sample meal plans, and I've got grocery shopping lists, and uh, a checklist of daily things that you can track, and all those things that I think are important. I think I should mention because it's really important in terms of compliance that it's been studied extensively that, that uh, the three biggest things in terms of compliance, number one is meal prep. That is the single most important thing. That's what the bikini figure physique bodybuilding industry has done very, very well. Yeah. They've done a lot of really shitty stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it, it, if, it if, makes if, life so much easier as well. Like it takes the same amount of time to prep three meals as it does one. <laughs> yeah. And you're just more inclined to comply with your diet if you reach into the fridge and there's have, already a pre-portioned. You have to physically go out your way to then go off the, the to go off the plan, you know. Yep. And I'll say this that uh, it's been life changing for me is I just got on Amazon and bought a twenty dollar thermos, just a little warm, you know, one of those little double insulated thermos. Yeah. And I'll heat when I'm making breakfast. I'll heat up a second meal or even two meals, and I'll put them into thermos so that I have what I need when I'm away from the house. If I have to pick the kids up at school and take them to practice, uh, I'm not stuck, you know, getting all hungry and, and stopping by Carl's Jr. later and, and uh, loading up on a ton of calories. I just eat what's in my thermos 
Uh, when I travel, I take them on the plane with me. Uh, I'll take some frozen meals and I'll put them in my checked luggage so that uh, if I'm gone for the weekend, I stay at a place with a microwave and a fridge. I plan ahead. And that's what I, my big recommendation is, is, is meal prep. Secondly, is, is going to be tracking. I think that I know that people get concerned about having an um, uncomfortable relationship with the scale. Uh, but that which gets measured gets improved. And so I have all of my clients, my personal clients, I make them send me a WhatsApp or a text daily with their daily hours of sleep, their body weight when they wake up in the morning, and a picture of each meal they eat. And that way I can track uh, you know, how their compliance is. It's more for them than for me, to be honest with you. They're just compliant longer if, if, they, have, if they make those three little measures. Um, and lastly on that list is, is to get a trainer. It, it seems very, to be very helpful to either have a, a workout partner, uh, obviously a, a spouse or uh, someone, a girlfriend, boyfriend at home that, that supports your goals, uh, or a personal trainer that you go to on a regular basis to check in with. Those are the three most complete uh, or most successful methods for dieting. Yeah, 100%. Some, some amazing takeaways there. Stan, I'll let you go at that. I've took up enough of your time. Um, I cannot thank you enough for coming on this podcast. The, the caliber of what this man's done and achieved over his lifetime is absolutely nothing short of spectacular. And what if anyone isn't familiar, please go and have a look at some of his stuff. Again, it will all be linked below in the descriptions. Um, and Stan, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. This has been massive inspiration for me. And again, I'm going to try and continue to pass this information on and to my, the clients I continue to work with as well. Great. Thank you for having me, brother. Thank you. I'm so tired. There's not enough hours in the day. Bullshit excuses. I've got too much to do. I have to work late. I have to run the kids around. The bullshit excuses. I have to get up early tomorrow. They end now. This is fitness for nine to fivers. You work day-to-day jobs. In fact, you may even have two. And you've been trying to fit in a healthy lifestyle. We have the solution. This is Fitness for 9 to Fivers. And this is Andrew Marsham.